Welcome to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Now, we're recording this show slightly later than usual this week. I have a dose of man flu and I'm trying to sort of valiantly struggle on and didn't want to sniffle down the microphone too much at you. So here we are on Thursday evening. Um, We've got some exclusive polling from Opinion to unveil this week. We're going to be looking at how favourable or unfavourable British people are towards different countries. We know we're leaving the European Union, but what do we think of the rest of the world? We're also going to be revisiting a topic we talked about on last week's show. How old is too old to be Prime Minister? And indeed, how old is too young? We'll be looking at some numbers on that later. But first, we will begin, as we usually do, with what's in the news. And I'm joined by fellow podcaster, as normal, Leo Barassi. Leo, welcome to Polling Matters. Hello, Kieran. So how should we start this again? What's, what's your news topic for the week that's, that's caught your eye? Well, the one that's uh, caught my eye, as it's caught many people's eye, is the, the saga, the continued decline, perhaps, of UKIP and the Henry Bolton story. So I won't rehearse the details, Henry Bolton, racist girlfriend, all that kind of stuff. But I think the interesting thing is uh, the question of, uh, well, uh, to be honest, actually, I won't even say it's a question. I think the likelihood that this is the end of UKIP in its current form. Um, so... Uh, if if we're happy with that, and others might might debate it, but I think I'm I'm reasonably comfortable that it's uh, going to need something very different to happen for it to carry on as it is. Then I guess there's sort of two possible ways forward: either uh, the party isn't revived and it just sort of stay stays a, as a kind of zo- a zombie thing with a very small number of voters, which means there's a bunch of people who in the past were UKIP voters but are now either supporting Labour, the Tories, or are not voting. Um, or the other option is there's some kind of replacement for UKIP, some some other sort of illiberal nationalist party, um, or perhaps, let's say, Farage returns to UKIP's leadership and, and revives the party. So I guess the question is, what, what does that mean? I, I suppose I want to focus on the first option, the, the idea that actually UKIP continues to decline and nothing really takes its place, so... Aaron Banks doesn't form a new party or whatever. And I guess the question that's been on my mind is, what does that then mean for the rest of UK politics? Uh, I suppose I can see two obvious paths. So if there's no nationalist party, then the sort of the strategic response for Labour and the Tories is either crudely become more nationalist on the basis that there are voters available for them to win, or become less nationalist because those voters have nowhere to go. Um, and I guess I've sort of been been pondering those options, but I guess, you know, interesting to get your take on that. Well, I think that I, I, I would be very surprised if there was a replacement party. I mean, I know this has been talked up by, um, by people that have talked about things like the Freedom Party or some variation of that, which we see in Europe with Nigel Farage and Aaron Banks, as you mentioned, running the show there. I suppose there could be a vehicle for that if Brexit is seen to be sold out. But I, I, I get the impression that if that's going to be the case, then it's going to be the Tory right that have the most to say about that rather than another party. So I guess if Theresa May is seen as giving up too much um, uh, to Europe, and, and we'll talk about this in a bit in, when, I, when I talk about my news topic, then I think it's the Jacob Rees-Mogg's and the Boris Johnson's that will capitalise on that before it gets to the stage of um, Nigel Farage being able to, and to be honest, I'm not sure if Nigel Farage is in, is in a position to come and, um, you know, come back to British politics and get sort of 15% of the vote and upwards, uh, as he did at the height of UKIP's uh, popularity. So um, that's kind of where I see that going. And I, and I guess on the um, 
on the nationalistic front, I mean, I, I, without echoing the same point, I guess it really it's the Tories you're looking for there. Um, I, I think a bigger question is going to be how much immigration is going to be an issue um, in the next election or in the immediate future, because I do wonder whether, regardless of how much immigration falls or otherwise, the fact that we're leaving the European Union has almost blunted that as a as a an, as an issue, at least in the short term, uh, in British politics. But maybe that's wrong. Maybe it's just um, it's, it's it hasn't gone away completely. It's just gone to sleep for a bit, whilst other things like the NHS are in the news. Yeah, it's certainly fading as or has faded a bit as an issue that people are putting on top top of their concern. Um, I mean, your point about the right of the Tory party and the sort of um, Rhys Mogg and um, uh, the sort of sense that um, they are looking quite sharply at ex-UKIP voters and and thinking of them as as people they can win the support of. I think that sort of seems to be where consensus is, that the decline of UKIP pushes the major parties to the um, I don't think to the right is quite the right the right description, actually. I think it's more about pushing them in the, the nationalist as opposed to liberal internationalist direction. And, you know, arguably that's exactly what's happened with Labour as well, that the sort of becoming more leavey, arguably as a consequence of there being UKIP voters who are available and, and aren't being sucked up by another party. But I guess I'm not totally convinced that that's that's definitely what's going to happen and i suppose the analogy is the collapse of the lib dems um and i think you know the fact that they did so badly at the last election and don't seem to be coming back is kind of the mirror image of ukip and you know if if the dynamics were working exactly the same way then you would think that Labour and arguably the Tories' response to that would therefore be to think, well, there's a bunch of liberal internationalist voters up for grabs now. We need to offer stuff to win them over. Um, but yet no one's really suggesting that that is happening. So I suppose, with that in mind, it doesn't seem totally obvious to me why the disappearance of UKIP necessarily means that the parties move to suck up those voters rather than... Well, they kind of already... I mean, I mean, they, I mean they kind of already have, haven't they? I mean, UKIP collapsed at the last election. Um, some some went... Most of those UKIP voters went back to the Tories. Um, well, lots uh, of them went to Labour lots, as well. Lots, yeah, lots of them went to Labour, although I do think that sometimes that's over... Not overplayed, it is significant, but uh, I, I, I don't think many people should dispute the fact that more of them went to the Tories. Um, but these are different people, aren't they? I mean, all parties are coalitions, even even UKIP voters at the time were, were coalitions of different people as well. And I suppose maybe Labour will feel more <clears throat> inclined under the leadership it is to be much more economically interventionalist and economically nationalist, if that's the right phrase, um, to sort of hold in, hold in those people. So, you know, nationalising various industries, bailing out steel... That you know that sort of that sort of economic populism that I think UKIP voters did show a, a, a sort of attraction towards. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, and then with with the conservative side, I mean, it is that obvious sort of traditional um, jingoistic slash sort of uh, nationalism of a different sort, which is like sticking it to Brussels and uh, being more positive about. Brexit and that sort of thing. So yeah, but I, yeah, I mean, I, I I take your point, but I think your attempt to draw the distinction between the two seems to me to be making a cleaner break than is there in reality. Like if, uh, particularly if you look at the focus group transcripts of ex Labour voters um, who are 
disaffected with the current leadership. A lot of it is exactly the kind of stuff that you're talking about there, that they're sort of not standing up for Britain, um, that they are kind of liberal internationalist um, in quite sort of social ways that I think is uh, something that Labour are still struggling with. I think that's true, although I think the benefit Jeremy Corbyn probably has there is he is seen as sufficiently anti-establishment that maybe he doesn't suffer as much as an Ed Miliband would have done, or even in the future an Emily Thornbury or someone like that might do. Um, Because I think that he he is seen as someone that's been punished by the man and sticking it to the man, as it were, and therefore worthy of their support. Um, On my my news topic this week, I was going to talk a little bit about the Tories, not one individual um, news item itself, but just the general murmurings around their sort of leadership situation. So Boris Johnson briefed the press earlier in the week about how he, uh, he, he was ask, you know, asking for more money for the NHS, which was um, a sort of interesting thing in a number of ways. Again, Boris Johnson reminding us that he's there, reminding the Tory right that he's there and wanting to be their leader, I think. We talked about this last week. But also, I think, recognising, as a lot of Tories do, that the NHS is a really big issue for them. Any polling that you do um, when you ask which party do you trust on X, Y or Z issue will all, will almost always show... Um, Labour more trusted than the Tories on the NHS and given that the NHS has uh, appeared to at least raise in salience in the past sort of month or so with the winter crisis you know they're obviously under under pressure or feeling the pressure there so it will be um, it'll be interesting to see what the Tories do on cash and the NHS because it feels like they're reaching a consensus they need to do something and then as the week's gone on we've had sort of rumours of letters being circulated around uh, no confidence in Theresa May. And the idea is, and I'm not sure how true this is, that there's some quirk in the system there with the 1922 committee, wherein it's not always obvious how many letters the chair, um, Graham Brady, has. And therefore, um, it could they could accidentally find themselves with a vote of no confidence if they sort of cross that 48-letter threshold. There's not like a, a, a sort of a thresholdometer above his uh, above his a counter on the wall above, yeah. above you know above the office on his do- uh, door five days till the next leadership spill yeah so i mean it just feels like theresa may looks reasonably strong but i guess it just reminds you that at any moment there could be a groundswell of um a, a movement against her although i'm not convinced there's going to be one soon but again just reminding ourselves how vulnerable she is at the moment right and I, I guess that, you know, those two things are not, uh, I mean, this is your point, right? But they are entirely related that if if you are, oh my God, let, let's just face it, I need to start start this with Kieran, it's time for some game theory. Um, <laughs> if, if you are, let's, let's say Boris Johnson, and you uh, want to make sure that you are the front runner for the next leadership race, then uh, in an ideal situation for you, you would know that the leadership race will happen um in say october 2020 and you've got a few years to prove that you're very good at your job you're loyal and so on but you don't know that because the situation with the 1922 committee and the unknown nature of when the next leadership contest will be so you kind of have to be constantly um fighting to also jockeying for possession position all the time which is clearly suboptimal for the strategy of the party and, and its performance and uh, its unity but is i guess is in the nature of it being 
always plausible that the leadership contest could start. And just to, and just to add to that, um, Laura Kunzberg has tweeted tonight that uh, trouble ahead. Rhys Mogg, who represents many Tory backbenchers, will say tonight the government's tone on Brexit needs to fundamentally change. Approach seems to be, he's quoted as saying, we must accept what the EU will allow us to do. This is no way to negotiate and no way for this country to behave. I must say, I mean, you know, I, I didn't dare not take the idea of Jacob Rees-Mogg as Prime Minister seriously after you know Trump and Corbyn doing well and all the rest of it, but he does seem to be gradually easing, uh, increasing his profile. And there's like, there's little, there's small things that I've known, very Westminster Village things I will accept, but there are small things that he's doing um, that I that are worth keeping an eye on. So he's got this fortnightly podcast now with Conservative Home. I think I haven't listened to it personally, but. Um, I'm not sure if it's related to Brexit or if it's related to every anything, um, but little things like that are quite, you know, that, that's probably quite important for him to sort of really get himself out there with the grassroots of whom he, with whom he's still already very popular. So I wonder. I mean, some people say he might be the kingmaker rather than the king, as it were, but um, certainly he feels like someone whose interventions are going to be more and more important as time goes by. Yeah, I mean, so there was an excellent take on this on the New Statesman podcast, and I think it was Stephen Bush who was making this point, that essentially this is shaping up potentially to be an extremely widely um, competed leadership contest for the Tories, that there are an awful lot of people who will have interest in going into it for lots of different reasons. Some who think that they might win, some who just want to do well enough and they're rising stars to make sure that they can still be in the cabinet, some who are potentially on the way out, uh, you know, you're kind of Liam Foxes who want to do well enough to make sure that they can also be in the cabinet. Uh, and I guess the point is, I hear you about Reese Mogg, but I think if that take is right, then it opens up the space for a lot of uncertainty about who who will go where and i think uh, that that suggests it's very difficult to um uh to call so i suppose there's this point on the nhs that you you mentioned and i just kind of want to respond on that because i think we uh, are in danger of buying into the received wisdom a bit much that the NHS is suddenly this thing that everyone is really worried about and the Tories are in danger of losing the election or they think that they're in danger of lose it, losing the election on it. And I mean, it's, it's, not that, it's not that the NHS is unimportant, but Labour all, is always leading on the NHS. Um, there are always concerns about how it's doing, um, at least in most of the normal run in politics. Labour's lead on the NHS now is almost exactly the same as it was. In fact, it's marginally less on YouGov's margin of error space uh, than it was during the last election. So it hasn't suddenly opened up a space that would push it miles ahead in the election. It's exactly where it was um, in, the, in the summer. And in terms of the salience of it as an issue, you're right, it has gone up, but only it is only very slightly more salient than it was in January last year. And it looks like it's on its way back down. It jumped up a few points, nine points after Christmas. Uh, but I, it doesn't feel like it's in a different in a different plane now that it's, it, it's that we're sort of in new political territory. And it's still a long way behind Brexit as the most important issue. So I get that the Tories want to neutralise it and just make sure that they don't get absolutely hammered on it. But 
I think for anyone looking at it and thinking that the Tories are on on their way to losing the next election because of where the NHS stands, I think it isn't really understanding the breadth of stuff that people make voting decisions on. Sure, but I think my, my slight counter to that would be... Um... Well, you touched on the new, uh, neutralizing it. I mean, that, I mean that's that's the thing. They don't want it to be a running sore that becomes a big ticket item at the next election. And I suppose that does come down to when is the next election going to be? Because I, I have this ongoing sort of clunky metaphor, which you, you you probably are aware of, Leo. Where I sort of talk about Brexit as being a bit like the Second World War, in the sense only that um, once it's over. You know, there's going to be a battle for which party owns the peace, as it were. Who who owns the future after this big event has happened? So what I mean by that is, if assuming Brexit and happens in sort of 2019, or, or there's um there's some kind of transition, okay, so it goes into 2021. Whatever, whatever sort of cutoff you use, there will be a life after Brexit. There will be a sort of view of who who's going to um, own that future. The Tories seem to be struggling a lot. To, to capture that, whereas I think Labour have the potential to do that kind of atlee job on Churchill, um, where it's like, right, okay, we've left the European Union now, now what kind of country are we going to build? And if the NHS is still a kind of, is seen as in real dire straits, then I think that Labour will have one of the big ticket items that they can really push in, in that discussion in a way that I don't know what the Tories are going to have. So, I mean, I, I, yeah. Kieran, you sweet summer child. <laughs> Brexit will never be over. <laughs> Well, speaking of Brexit, one of our polling questions this week was around favourability ratings to different countries. Because I was quite curious as to whether, um, sort of, not just whether Brits had different views of different countries, as they obviously, as you might expect, do, but what different sort of um, subsets of the British population think about different countries. So a very, at a very simplistic level, we asked, as part of our Polling Matters opinion series, we asked how favourable or otherwise people were towards um, a number of different countries. So... Um, it was a five-point scale question, and it was um, so very, very or quite favourable, very or quite unfavourable, and there was a neutral option and no opinion. And the questions that we um, asked about included, and I'll reel them off here, the United States, France, Germany, Spain, Poland, Australia, Russia, Iran, China, South Africa, Japan, New Zealand, and Argentina. And I should say, you know, apologies to India, apologies to Canada, apologies to Brazil and other countries that weren't included. But, you know, you can't include everyone. So we, we were just looking at a sort of selection of countries to see what people thought. So probably the simplest way to do this to, for listeners is to start off by saying, here are the top four countries by net favourability. So this was countries who, when you subtract those that are unfavourable, so in the example of the winner, New Zealand, 3% unfavourable, 72% favourable. That's a net score of 69, uh, plus 69%. So New Zealand wins with plus 69%, Australia second with plus 66 Spain third with plus 46 and then Japan in fourth place with plus 38 Any surprises there, would you say, Leo? Um, well, I guess they're all in there for different reasons, right? Sort of New Zealand and Australia are there kind of because... Uh, we feel like there are uh, uh, our wayward cousins who are who are uh, living their nice life on the other side of the world, but they're basically the same peoples as us. Um, Spain, I guess, is sort of a holiday thing. It's a place that people uh, like and know, but it sort of it doesn't it doesn't sort of have this kind of polit political controversy in terms of its international relations. Um, sure, there's 
no shortage of domestic political controversy in Spain at the moment, but mm. I suspect that's not really influencing much, much people's mind. But I guess Japan is the, the interesting one there, and it's sort of not immediately obvious why um, it does so well. I suspect part of it is there's a lot of sort of neutrality in people's views about Japan. So the, the sort of composition of that high net score includes only 46% of people who are favourable compared with 71, 72 for New Zealand and mm. Australia. So there's actually quite a big drop off there. And a lot of people just don't really have a strong opinion. So a lot of what's going on with Japan is lots of people just don't dislike it that much. But yeah. uh, even so, it's still striking that it does so well. I, I was surprised it was that high nonetheless. I think it's probably just respected as like a sort of technologically advanced, um, you know, um, impressive country for want of a better phrase but i wouldn't have i wouldn't have called it in fourth place i must say um the bottom four um from sort of worst to four from bottom i guess iran minus 55 uh, so 61 percent unfavorable five percent favorable russia uh, minus 39 so 11 percent favorable 50 percent unfavorable and then we have um, argentina minus 10 china minus seven and we'll go we'll go to the sort of bottom five and South Africa minus six. Although with South Africa, China and Argentina, there are, there is a fair bit of neutrality there. So to give you an example, South Africa has 20% favourable, 26% unfavourable, which means you've got like 54% that are either neutral or, or you know have no opinion. So really the ones that kind of stand out as genuinely, with their genuinely negative views are Russia and Iran there. Mm. And maybe Argentina, you know, the legacy of the Falklands is still there, at least with some people. Yeah, and, and again, they're interesting, but I think that Falklands point you raise is really interesting because Argentina, um, and it, you, you, you spotted this, so apologies for, uh, for nicking your interesting point, but uh, what's going on in Argentina is that there's a huge age difference in terms of people's views on it. So uh, unlike lots of other countries, um, the unfavorability is really very heavily driven by older people, mm. um, which I think is we have to assume is the legacy of the Falklands War. Um, sort of, it's not obvious why else there would be uh, such a difference uh, in age there. Um, so just to, just to sort of uh, give that uh, context, so we've got um, unfavorable of uh, 55 plus is 32 compared with 16 among 1834s. So twice as many older, older people rather than younger people are unfavorable, which um, is interesting. And... To draw a parallel, um, sharp-eared listeners might notice we haven't mentioned Germany, uh, which does well and comes fifth, only just behind Japan, um, and doesn't have that age split. So one of the first things I looked at when you mentioned that Argentina uh, age division was whether Germany had the same thing, and to a slight extent, but really not very much. So uh, people aged 55 plus are a little more unlike a little more likely to be unfavorable but actually not by much and favorability 49 for younger voters 43 for for older people mm. um so and i actually think these um th- th- these questions are more politically relevant than maybe first apparent so um for example the the age gap of argentina i think speaks to why the tory attacks on jeremy corbyn over things like the falklands like the ira like other things like that are perhaps um, maybe not as effective as they might have been because there's clearly a generational... They, they, they sort of resonate with a certain generation, but maybe with not uh, another one. Um, having said that, looking at these numbers, 
I think uh, the 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 uh, Iran thing and the um, sort of Islamic extre- links to Islamic extremism or calling Hamas friends that side of things may or may not be more potent in the future, but it's, it's really hard to say. So I suppose that we can we can um, we can learn things from these numbers that at face value don't seem anything other than mildly interesting. Yeah, I mean, by the way, just on just on the sort of political side, I guess. Um, I don't think it's proved from this that the Iran thing and unfavorability is driven by a terrorism thing. Uh, I think given that Russia is up there as well, it feels to me that it's more of a kind of geostrategic sort of sense of these are our national adversaries um, rather than um, these are sort of the countries that are causing us sort of domestic threats. I'm not sure. I mean, it might be the case, but... I guess um, I'm not sure why Russia would be so high if it was driven or so low if it was driven by by a sort of sense of of terrorism. And we should also add to that, actually, we should stress that this list is by no means perfect. So, for example, you don't have Iraq in there, you don't have Afghanistan, so that we don't have North Korea. Um, We don't don't have Ireland either. Sorry, Nan. Um, so there's lots of countries that we could have added to this, but I guess there's only so long the list can be. One of the main reasons I, I, I put this polling question in there, though, was to have a look at um, what different demographics fought of different countries, and particularly Leavers and Remainers. So um, one of the striking things that probably won't supply, uh, surprise listeners, when you look at France and Germany, um, it, it was actually exactly the same split. 57% of Remainers were favourable to both France and Germany, but only one in three um, leave voters. But on the other hand, as you mentioned earlier, Leo, Spain's slightly different. Everyone loves Spain. Must be the weather. Um, 59% of Remainers like Spain, 51% of Leavers. So um, there is a bit of a Leave Remain uh, thing going on there, in, at least with some countries. Right. And um, there is uh, one quite obvious country that we haven't talked about at all yet, which is the US, um, which comes pretty much bang in the middle, uh, 43% favourable, 24% unfavourable. And that also has a big remain leave division, um, but this one's the other way around. So uh, it has remainers are only plus two favorable, leavers are plus 34 favorable. Um, so very striking difference there. Um, actually, the only other country I spotted that is similar to that is Australia, which also has this big leave, uh, uh, leave uh focus in terms of its support um and uh, by the way australia has it new zealand doesn't uh which is um quite striking uh, i mean the gap the gap is much smaller than it is with the us by the way in terms of the leave favorability of australia um but clear that um there is there's a political thing going on here in terms of uh some european countries being more preferred by remainers some Anglophone international countries, more distant countries being favoured by leavers. Yeah, so on Australia, just for the listeners' benefit, 69% of Remainers um, favourable towards Australia, 76% of leavers, though. So there was a, a, re- a reasonably significant um, difference there. And just one other thing that I wanted to pull up that sort of in the context of that, there was a Gallup poll uh, that came out in the last week or so. Um, that asked, it was uh, surprisingly big, 134 countries, they say, that they've polled in, um, asking about uh, people's views of leadership of various countries. So as I understand it, this is um, uh, quite explicitly framed in terms of what people think of the country as leaders. 
Um, and uh, interestingly, unlike our opinion poll, which asked uh, about favorability towards the country in general, this is clearly slightly more of a political thing. And with this, we get a much bigger difference. Um, so uh, the UK, for example, uh, actually had a net negative of 30 points um, about the US um, uh, in terms of uh, the leadership, um, which I think just goes to show something quite interesting that uh, people are making a distinction in general between how they view the country and how they view the leaders of the country. So I think that Gallup poll got quite a bit of sort of commentary on it of the US's reputation has tanked and it was actually behind China in the Gallup poll. Uh, but I think we should be a bit careful of over-interpreting that. That it, just feel, it feels that, that, that feels the leadership doesn't mean they are necessarily that's immediately applying to what they think of the country. So, so was it literally about the leadership, as in Trump? Yeah, it's actually. Or, or I find it about... it's uh, quite difficult um, to get the exact wording of the question. They keep on calling it leadership uh, of the country. Because my uh, my hunch there is yeah. it's probably framed as like their ability, the country's ability to show leadership. But let's be yeah, honest. Yeah, no, sorry to be clear, it is uh, leadership of uh, disapproval of the leadership of so oh, right. so it is Trump. Um, i think yeah i think that's the case i guess uh, it's not totally clear whether it could be interpreted as um the us's global leadership or whatever mm. but uh it's certainly people are interpreting it very much in terms of um the uh the views on the the leaders i think it's very clear when you see well, that yeah that, I, I, I was gonna I say even even if it is their the country showing leadership i think it's probably gonna be seen yeah the it's slightly of... ambiguous so do you approve or disapprove of the job performance of the leadership of the us so mm. i think it people are clearly going to interpret that as um about the politicians themselves and you know you look at the us numbers so approval has dropped 26 points <clears> between obama and trump so I guess it was 59 last year and it's 33 this year. So uh, there is obviously a political um, uh, political interpretation of that. And the fact that despite that, in the favorability of the country, the US still comes out middling, I think should just make us a bit wary of over-interpreting how much people are reading from the leadership, the political leaders to the views of the country. Yeah, it might be one we uh, tr try and trend in the future because unfortunately we don't, we, we don't have a trend on our specific data, but... Um, maybe we'll look at that again in a year's time or something. So on your polling topic, Leo, we were talking about um, Jeremy Corbyn and his age last year, uh, last week, weren't we? Um, we've got a question on that in the opinion uh, poll this week too. Yeah, so it's quite a straightforward one. We asked, uh, think about job of prime minister, its duties and responsibilities, and then two questions. At what age do you think someone is too young to become prime minister? And at what age do you think someone is too old? Um, and we provided a bit of context. Uh, while the job is very different nowadays, the youngest Prime Minister Britain has ever had was 24 when he was appointed, while the oldest was 82. So perhaps a bit of an anchoring effect, but um, you know, uh, I think the, an the answers we got were quite striking. So uh, the youngest um, that mean we got for what's the youngest the Prime Minister should be was 33 years and the mean that we had for what the oldest should be was uh, 65 years. So, uh, you know, clear, clearly uh, people are sort of thinking about the question uh, in the sort of the way that you would hope that they would and sort of giving uh, quite kind of considered answers. But um, not much difference between uh, the uh, views of people of different parties. And really quite striking, I mean, I guess we could come to the youngest, but... 
for for the debate we were having last week, which was about how much of an impact Corbyn's age might be. Uh, for context, Corbyn is currently 68. Um, now, people are on average saying that he is uh, already older than the oldest that someone should be when they become prime minister. Now, I guess on the face of it, that suggests that this could this has the potential to be a problem. That essentially people look at it and broadly the you know the mean uh is sort of the classic retirement age is pe when people think they're going to take over but i don't know i mean do you reckon that 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 will sort of play out in reality or uh, does it sort of get well, overwritten by partisanship I, I, I think yeah the partisanship point is important i think that you know if, if we had polled you know is jeremy corbyn too old we are i think we know roughly well we certainly know there would have been the conservatives would have said yes labor voters would have said no right I'm not sure what the overall um, opinion would have been, but we deliberately didn't do that because we were trying to understand what people think, sort of all things being equal outside of partisanship. And I suppose there is a debate here as to how useful that is. But what, what really struck me from these numbers was how consistent the mean score was by age, by gender, by, I guess, region wouldn't be that different, but by political party. You know, it was around that 30 plus to 65. So it fit what this says to me is that there is an underlying belief that actually, whether it's Jeremy Corbyn or somebody else, that being 68, potentially 70 or above, is too old. Now, whether that can actually be weaponized as a political issue at a general election is unclear. But I do think that if the Conservatives had a younger, a distinctly younger leader who felt reasonably fresh. So that would obviously not be Boris Johnson. It probably wouldn't be Jacob Rees-Mogg even. It would be somebody like... Gavin Williamson. Well, I was going to say David Cameron. I don't mean him literally, but it would be someone... Because David Cameron, even at his worst, always managed to convey like look reasonably fresh-faced, right? I mean, irrespective of all the politics of it, I think him and George Osborne look a lot younger than Jeremy Corbyn in a way that a lot of other Conservative potential leaders don't. Um... You know, it's that age-old American presidential thing, isn't it? When you get the guy, who's the guy in the tank? Well, anyway, but you get the, the you know the young one goes around throwing the football and um, you know looking all military and that sort of thing, and makes an issue out of the age without, and talks about the opponent having old ideas without actually saying you are old. They they sort of try and find ways of putting that in there. Um, but I don't. I generally don't know. I think it's probably fine to say I don't know whether it, the the partisanship can be over you know, overtaken in this debate, but it feels to me that there is an understanding that he is quite old. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's a threat, but I guess, as I sort of, as I've felt in the past, um, it's, it's not like age is uh, something that um, affects everyone in the same way and sort of demonstrates itself in the same way. And, um, I mean, Corb Corbyn is 68, but particularly post-election, he is seeming quite energetic and full of life and but he's already know, had to ask he's already had to answer the question once hasn't he, he like the last couple of weeks that he was talking about it he's already right. had to answer it and i, I yeah. just think it's one of the i mean people talk about um the messaging of long-term economic plan many not the few that sort of thing yeah yeah the Tories, yeah, so, so what so if the Tory, tories carried on pushing it then more people would ask ask the question but well, all i'm all, all i'm saying is there is an undercurrent at least from these numbers and it's one data point right and one what we didn't ask was what is the ideal age and maybe we should do that in the future and see if there's more variety and responses by by doing that maybe there will be i really don't know 
may, um, maybe the ideal age is different for conservatives to Labour, or but maybe we'll do that this week. Um, but yeah, I just think that the more he has to respond to it, the more it will become an issue. And if people implicitly do secretly think, actually, 65 is at the upper e- echelon, then, I don't know, it could become an issue. But what the Tories will have to decide is whether they want to go there and whether they actually want to make that an issue. And I think that's going to largely depend on who the, who the leader is again. Because... Well, but there's different ways of going there, right? Like, they would clearly be extremely ill-advised to get out there and, and say straight away, no one who is 70 years old should be allowed the responsibility of being prime minister because that's toxic. And yeah. saying to your older voters that you're too old to do this kind of stuff is obviously, I mean, not o- not only wrong politically, wrong morally, and yeah. they, they shouldn't be doing that. But, um, you know, in, in the blood sport of politics, then they, sure, there, there are lots of ways of getting across the same message without saying it. But, I mean, you know, Trump is um, in his mid seventies. I think um, going to be seventy four. I think by the next election, mm. if I'm remembering right, um, it's not like uh, Corbyn is going to look or is going to literally be an outlier in terms of his age. Um, you know, I guess but the other way of looking at it is uh, Macron seems to be coming across quite well in the UK. He's forty. Um, yeah, and, and do you think um, what a young, uh, energetic, visionary leader looks like? Then that becomes more of a problem. But potentially for both parties, I mean, Macron is so much younger than both Corbyn and Theresa May that sort of it doesn't really make a difference that Corbyn's a bit older. Well, look at it, look at it another way as well. Do we think that Obama's age had nothing to do with his ability to appeal uh, above uh, John McCain in that in that election? I mean, I, I think it particularly. Well, not just his age, but lots of things about Obama spoke to change, which was his prevailing message of that campaign, right? So it wasn't just about one thing. But I certainly think that he was the new generation versus the old, wasn't he? Yeah, So, but that's that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Can you be a change candidate when you look old? Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you can, but mm. it, it's hard. I mean, obviously, Bernie Sanders uh, was going for the same thing as well, and wasn't able to persuade enough democratic voters that um, that that was the case. Well, I think so, what Corbyn's got going for him is is that he's he's an, he's seen as an outsider. He's an authentic outsider who has been pilloried by the the, the so-called establishment. So he can he can be changed on the basis that well, quite a lot of people that were established didn't want him to be there in the first place, including an extremely unpopular Tony Blair, who we you know we've talked about, um, not just with the Labour Party, extremely unpopular. Full stop. So. I wouldn't worry too much about Jeremy Corbyn's ability to be changed there. I suppose, actually, arguably, it's harder for the Conservatives to be changed from government. I know that Gordon Brown tried to be that um, and was for about five yeah, minutes. Yeah, well, but you, then can, it do, you can do hard, it for a very it? short amount of time when you start, but you certainly can't do it when you've been in power for 10 years. Well, in any case, it's, it's, it's going to be uh, one to watch whether that gets brought up as a big um, sort of political issue in, in, in the coming years. My hunch is that it will, um, because I actually think there's going to be a few people in the Labour Party that would quite like it to be, and actually not just the usual suspects that um, on the sort of the Labour right. But um, that's all we've got time for for this week's um, politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. A big uh, thanks to my podcaster in crime, Leo Barassi, uh, for joining me as, as usual. Um, we'll be back in, uh, in next week with some more polling analysis and uh, analysis of news and events at Westminster. If there are any polling topics you want us to cover or would like us to cover as part of our Polling Matters opinion series, do get in touch with Leo or I and uh, make some suggestions. We'd love to hear from you. And if you could, uh, could uh, share the podcast or give it a like or a comment or a rating on iTunes or on 
podcast apps to help get our name out there and share the show um, that would be really great too because we even now after sort of almost three years of doing the show um, more than three years actually um, we still get new listeners um, who, who say that they've uh, just arrived at the show and really like it which is always nice to hear but for now thanks for listening and see you next week